welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is the podcast audio version of our regular Sunday Science Shambles Q&A show, which is streamed live at 3pm British summertime every Sunday on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Cosmic Shambles. So obviously since this was uh, initially a live stream, there might be a couple of visual elements that don't translate as well to the audio version on the podcast and there might be the one or two technical hitches, such as the uh, joy of doing live stream shows over the internet uh, when everyone's stuck at home. And remember, you can support us at the Cosmic Shambles Network, patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. If you head there and subscribe, uh, not only do you get lots of goodies, extra shows, bonus live streams and all that sort of stuff, uh, that's that support is what enables us to keep making these podcasts and the live streams and everything else uh, while we can't be out doing live shows like we normally would be. And check out all the other great science and culture content we've got going on at cosmicshambles.com. There's the new uh, exclusive documentary series we made with the European Space Agency with Helen Chersky and Ginny Smith and Tim Peake and others. Lots of other live streams, blogs, podcasts, and plenty of things to keep you occupied. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, you join me live from a bungalow in England's first Hollywood. You'll have to do the looking up. I'm not going to give you any more clues than that. Welcome to the uh, traditional Sunday Science Q&A. We weren't on last Sunday, and that was only because we, uh, on Friday night, we did a lovely event with uh, Tanita Tikram and Josie Long and Helen Chersky and Samantha Cristoforetti, who is uh, a really inspiring uh, astronaut and many other things as well. Really, so so if, you, if you haven't caught up with that yet, that was a really enjoyable She, I think, still the longest consecutive time for a european astronaut in in space as far as i remember 199 days uh, again you can check those this information yourself that's what it's what we need to be doing more of so sun, today's sunday science q a um it's all doctors so i won't be using any of uh, any of that you, you would just just take it as read that every person on this is uh, is a doctor in mathematics in glaciology in bubble physics uh, i know it's not called bubble physics helen chersky but it's that's what i like to call it so uh, just tell you a few things which is one if you can support us via our Patreon. If you don't support us by Patreon already, that is uh, very, very useful to us because we're trying to make about you know three, four, five shows per week on lots of different subjects. We're trying to keep up with all of the kind of science stuff that we can. We want to make more, and of course, our normal resources we basically aren't earning because, uh, for instance, my big autumn tour no longer exists. So it means that if we can get some money in, it makes it easier for us to make stuff. So if you are able to support us with our Patreon, thank you very much. Uh, if you are not able to support us with our Patreon, but you have a smaller amount of money that you feel should uh, go for uh, our own particular niche well I mean it's, it's niche in so much as it's niche to be interested in everything that exists in the universe um, then we also have a tip jar at the bottom here uh, and you can just pop something in today uh, so today uh, I'll tell you what we've got going on we have a new three-part web series uh, coming up on Cosmic Shambles the first episode is out now uh, on the YouTube channel Cosmic Shambles YouTube uh, it was filmed uh, pre-pandemic at the Kennedy Space Center which uh, Kennedy Space Center for me is where I saw Duran Duran live uh, last year and uh, also with uh, the actual space shuttle Atlantis uh, and it's looking at the history and engineering behind the shuttle program and its companion series uh, on the Stand Up Maths channel as well with Matt Parker um, looking at the maths of space flight so, uh, and that has all been made possible by our Patreon supporters so thank you on uh, Wednesday night Wednesday night I will be different on Wednesday night by the way there will be less content from me on Wednesday night because this is the last time you'll see me um, 
with all of my teeth. Uh, I've finally reached an age where one of my teeth is going on having one molar, which despite me often saying to the dentist, I think there's something wrong with that. He went, no, 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 it's fine. Basically, it's just a hollow remnant of a molar, which is a reminder that Kurt Vonnegut was told by his dentist that our, our teeth are actually only really meant to exist till we're about 44 years old, which tells us when we should really die. And everything after that is borrowed time. Thank you. Kurt, your uh, dental optimism is something which preys on my mind a great deal. But we are on Wednesday doing a Doctor Who show and tell and other things beyond Doctor Who. We have Toby Hayduck, who did an absolutely wonderful series, which was uh, on Radio 4 called uh, Moth's Sake, My Doctor Who Scarf. Does a huge number of uh, events uh, for Doctor Who conventions and also loads of the DVDs as well. And he has an incredibly encyclopedic knowledge, as does um, Alan Lear, who... um, you may well have seen on Newsnight talking about when Sharda came out. He, uh, a member of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society, runs uh, some really great uh, Doctor Who conventions uh, with uh, um, his partner, Erica, um, or what, probably wife, Erica, I think. And uh, now uh, that's most of that done. First of all, congratulations, by the way, to um, our regular co-host on this, Helen Chersky, who is going to be one of the Royal Institute Christmas Lectures this year, also with Chris Jackson and uh, Tara Shine. And uh, we're going to have a special uh, announcement next week on next Sunday's show, where we will have Chris and Tara on the guests, and we will talk a little bit more about that. But let's go over to Helen. Hello, Helen. How are you? you? I am doing very well. And yeah, it's exciting that there's three of us for the first time since 1957, I think, the the, the, the um, International Geophysical Year. They had think actually six that year and this year they've got three which is appropriate for earth earth science hasn't got lots of stuff in it right so it's quite nice to have a, um, a team job on this so we can all cover the different bits from different areas of expertise which is sort of what you need for earth science you know that thing of single lone heroes going off and doing stuff in science not really how it works anymore so yeah we're we're looking forward to getting stuck into that so can I, how much are we allowed to know? So, I mean, will they be individual lectures, if, if you're allowed to, to or will yes. you all be kind of working together? So we, we will each have one lecture. Um, the, we're trying to play with it a little bit, but there is nothing confirmed on that yet. But basically, each of us will, will do, Chris will talk about um, geology, I will talk about the oceans, Tara will talk about the atmosphere, and it will go in that order. Um, so we are each responsible for one but you know we know they weave together so we're going to try and represent that in some way and obviously it's going to be a bit different this year we don't know how because well lecture theatres are not the busy places they used to be I think that is fair they will be recorded at the Royal Institution but the style might be a little bit different but then that's exciting isn't it something to play with something to experiment with and that you know they've been going for 180 years and they've been brilliant but you know, that doesn't mean you can't experiment sometimes. So we're, we're going to be playing with some of that as well. There is The, the, the one, one pity about, about that is for anyone who's ever been behind the scenes at a Christmas lecture, it really is like a circus, isn't it, in terms of the number. I was lucky I, I did a, had a small part uh, of having a magnetic pulse to the left-hand side of my brain when Sophie Scott did them. And backstage was just people dressed as chimpanzees on stilts and there were rooks and there were ravens and there were, you know, it was, it, there, were, there was a menagerie and it looked, it, it, it's, it's a wonderful thing to see how you know all of your minds coming together to create that kind of science communication i'm really looking forward to that um what is your show and tell today uh, well i so i have this and i have to point out it's not a urine sample i realized i probably have to say that straight away it's a san- sample of water from the north pole um and it's got the date on it so it's the 
uh, 12th of August, two years ago. Now, the reason I'm showing this is that, so this is from um, when I went to the North Pole two years ago on the ship. The reason I'm showing it now is that I have, uh, there's another very, very big expedition ongoing at the moment, Mosaic, where they've been drifting all the time, all the rest of us have been dealing with coronavirus. One German ship has been has spent an entire year almost now drifting across the North Pole, frozen into the ice, doing science, just kind of following the ice along. And um, I have friends who are still on it. And one of the things that is you might not expect now, which is a, was new for Mosaic, is that we can contact them during WhatsApp. So there's no pictures, but we can send text WhatsApp messages, which is a bit weird because we're all normally used to people who go away. You don't hear from them for many months. And I'm getting WhatsApp messages from my friends on board. Anyway, so the reason I was thinking about the water was that um, the situation there and now is very similar to the one we were in two years ago and yet what they're looking at in that they're at the north pole they're, they're you know the ship's frozen in and they're doing their studies but what they're seeing is so very different and what they're seeing compared with when we were there two years ago is that the melt ponds are actually re-melting so what happens is you get melt ponds during the summer and it freezes and then it stays frozen and they're re-melting this year because it's so warm he said it's around it's only just below freezing there at the moment and one of the consequences of that is that there's lots of algae growing that we didn't see at all so i saw this pot on my shelf and i thought the thing that was striking about this this water for us at the time was that it was so clean in that you know there's not a lot living in it and now i think if we, the samples that this this one friend brings back will probably have a lot more life in them which sounds like it might be a good thing but it's a major change to the way the arctic works so i was just thinking about my little frozen bit of history here if you like from two years ago and and just thinking about how much it's it's already changing and of course we don't know there's year-to-year -year variability but obviously this is the general pattern it's getting warmer there during the summer and um and we're trying to study it as it's happening it's like trying to study it being on a train that is getting into trouble and we're watching it happening um but yeah so there are big changes already so i just wanted to show you my little pot uh, that is definitely not a urine sample. <laughs> Brilliant. You've you said, said that, that too many times now for us to believe that. Um, we're also joined by uh, Dr. Katie Steckles, Steckles, who I think I was I, trying to remember because I did so many. I've just been doing a show on Radio 4 called Laws That Aren't Laws. And I did Parkinson's Law and Murphy's Law back to back. And Parkinson's Law and Murphy's Law have a certain amount of kind of uh, overlap. You did Parkinson's, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. Good. That's what I was trying to remember. I was trying to remember whether it's yes. Um, so, which was a bit of really great input as well in, in terms of the mathematics of that. Uh, now, Katie, as a mathematician, what I think you have something. There's actually had to be a bit of setup for your show setup and tell. Setup for your show and tell, which always excites me. So, there's a, a, a level of, uh, of of drama and show yeah. to this. Yeah, I've gone. I've gone slightly complicated. There might might be multiple cameras involved. Um, essentially, I wanted to show and tell this, uh, which is a little thing that I was given as a gift um, last year. Um, but it's the kind of thing that you might find in a secondhand shop, sort of a vintage item. Um, and if I take it out of its little case, it's got a little kind of vinyl case that it comes in. Uh, but it is a uh, an adding and subtracting machine. So it says across the top here, adding and subtracting machine. Um, and this is the uh, Admaster Junior. So it's Junior. I guess you could presumably get a more senior version of this. Uh, this one, I think, does... Uh, something like 10 digits. So I guess the senior one maybe has more digits. Um, but the idea of this is that you can use it to do addition. Um, and I guess this is the kind of thing that was popular before calculators became a thing. Um, but it's a really simple kind of setup. So you, you can kind of input numbers here. So say I wanted to put in uh, a number four, I just put my little stylus in at the hole where it says four and slide it all the way down. And then the little hole at the top should now say four. 
Um, and if I wanted to make, say, uh, 24, I put a two in the next column and slide that down, and now I've got 24 set up on here. Um, but of course, this is an adding machine. You want to see it doing some adding. Uh, so if I want to add something to that, I could say do 24 plus another three. So I go in at three, slide that down. That's not hugely impressive. It's just made that four into a seven. Um, but what you really want to see is if I now try and add, say, another six, right? What's going to happen? Because we're going to go bigger than nine. It's going to be weird. Uh, so I pull it down as far as I can, and it comes up with a little red arrow in the hole, which means go all the way up and over the top and down. And what that does is it kind of goes over this little notch at the top and pulls the next column down one. So it increments, it kind of carries the one across to the next column. Um, and I got this, this is a really nice little thing. You can obviously do that all the way across. Um, and these come in lots of different versions. So I think some of the early companies that made these were German. ones um, of these with German writing on. But I've seen one that's got pounds, shillings and pence. Like there's all kinds of them. Um, you might be wondering about the fact that it says adding and subtracting up here. Well, that's on the back. Uh, so on the back here, it does subtraction and it's got all the same things set up and you can slide those around. Um, and it's got this little bar at the top. If you pull it out, it resets everything to zero. So it's a really nice little kind of self-contained thing with a little holder for the stylus. Um, and I was inspired by this because I like sort of playing around with things. And I sort of wanted to see how it works, like what's going on inside this thing. Uh, so I may have very carefully with a tiny screwdriver uh, prized the cover off this to have a look inside, took loads of photos, you know, made, made sure I could get uh, my head around it and then carefully put it all back together and knowledge to build uh, a slightly bigger and stupider one, which is obviously the, the correct thing to do in any situation. Uh, so if it switch to the other camera, so it switch to the uh, other I camera, I might be able to see uh, I guess you might be able to see. I've got, this is the, the wooden Admaster, I guess. This is the the version that I've made. And this is very much a prototype. So this is just kind of three bits of MDF that I've laser cut and kind of put together. Um, but it does all of the same things. I've made a little wooden stylus for it. So you can put the, the thing in here and make that down into a four. Um, and I could make, make it into a 24 and then I could add uh, another seven and I'll get to there and it gives me my little red arrow and then I go up and over and it's 31. Um, and the nice thing about this is I can take this apart. So if I remove my carefully applied bulldog clips that are holding the whole thing together, you can see what's going on inside. So if I take off the cover, um, it's just really simple. It's just a series of things that slide up and down. Um, and the way that the kind of notch thing works is that if I put, um, I've got, you can see there's a little gap here uh, between bits. Uh, you can just, it's probably easier to see if I take one of these out, but there's actually a little gap there. Um, and if I want to go, say, up and over, I would put my um, stylus in here slide it up and that would be where it hits the top and then I just literally go across to the next column and slide it down one. So the, the whole thing just works within this sort of sheet but once you put the front on it kind of holds everything in the right places. There isn't, sadly, there isn't a reset mechanism on this. I haven't managed <laughs> to build that in yet. Uh, but this is a prototype because basically what I would like to do with this is build a massive one. Like I'm imagining the kind of thing you could come and visit at a science festival where it takes up the whole side of the room and you've got like, instead of a little stylus, you've got like a broom handle or something that you stick in the thing and pull the things down. Because uh, I'd really love people to be able to sort of get hands on and interact with this. Uh, but I've got my my tiny little ad master that I can use to do my own little calculations. Uh, and I think it's a really nice little vintage piece of calculating equipment. 
Has it got a date on it? Do you know when yours was made? I don't know. It'd be really nice to know. The um, kind of the, the cover, most of the writing's worn off it. I can see that it used to say Admaster, but it may have had more information on in the past. Um, but literally, it's just it was found in a secondhand shop uh, by a friend of mine. Uh, but I've seen a few of them, like uh, Correntator, I think is another word that you see for them. Um, and they definitely do addition and subtraction, but you sometimes get slightly more complicated ones that do clever things as well. That's brilliant. What a wonderful thing. I would thing. imagine many people who were watching this are now currently just scurrying through the internet to try and find their own one. That's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Katie. And our final guest today, so Sammy Buzzard. How, are, How you? are you? Hi, Hi. Thank you. Now, you are a glaci- glaciologist. It is glaciologist, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Good, yeah. good. The because um, uh, you know it's a glaciologist, glaciologist. There's a whole, there's a whole um, Broadway show tune to be made from that. Obviously, um, what is your show and tell today? Okay. Oh, I should say before within our field, I've had very senior scientists say glacier and glacier. So I wouldn't worry. We we get both. We haven't decided ourselves. So <laughs> it's no wonder everyone else doesn't know. Um, so my show and tell, I panicked slightly when I found out I was going to have to do a show and tell for this because I'm currently working in the US. So I moved out to Atlanta, Georgia in January of last year. And unsurprisingly, with everything that's been going on this year, I've not been home so much since then. So I have my two suitcases of things, um, most of which were boring, practical things like clothes. So I was like, what am I going to show them? Um, But then I remembered I was lucky enough last year to go and visit NASA Goddard Space Flight Center um, up in Maryland, where I spoke to lots of people there who cared about ice and frozen things, because NASA is obviously most famous for all their cool space stuff which is amazing but they also care a lot about earth observation and most a lot of the reasons that we know what's going on in the polar regions is down to nasa and the european space agency having satellites up there and monitoring those areas um so it's a really cool place i was genuinely shocked by how little security there is once you're inside so it's obviously very hard to get into the nasa complex i had to get lots of permissions um and once you're in there all the live mission areas you obviously can't go near those without very very high security clearance but there are lots of areas that are just these big warehouses with random bits of rockets strewn around that people have kind of just like started working on and have been left there which I could have spent weeks there just walking around seeing all these bits of space junk everywhere um but one thing I also did while I was there is I met Claire Parkinson who is a very senior sea ice scientist she's one of the pioneers of sea ice science really um and that was super cool for me because it's not that often you get to see very senior women scientists, especially in kind of physics areas. Um, So that was a great day. But not only that, she gave me a book. So best day ever. Um, Who who doesn't need more books? So my show and tell is this here. I'm hoping this will come out over the camera. But this Mm. is Arctic sea ice. If you can see the dates from there, from 1973 to 1976. And we can see all the maps they made of Arctic sea ice back in the 70s. So this was the real kind of dawn of the satellite era. We weren't regularly monitoring the polar regions at that point. And the thing that I found most interesting about this book, other than there being lots of cool maps of sea ice, which is enough to keep me excited for quite a long time, and there is really no mention at all of climate change in this book, because this is, of course, the 70s. And what makes communicating climate change really difficult is the fact that we know that we are warming up the planet when you hear the words like anthropogenic climate change that's us that's humans we're warming the planet there is no doubt about that but there are also lots of other things happening especially to the arctic sea ice there are natural cycles there are storms some years it's warmer some years it's colder 
So if you only have a few years of data, so here we've got 73 to 76 in this book, you're not going to pick up that signal of things warming and the ice changing. There's enough variability that they wouldn't have looked at this data and thought, oh, yeah, we're definitely losing the sea ice. It wouldn't really have stood out from those four years. Now, when in 2020 we have a really long record of sea ice, it's really obvious. But I found it pretty fascinating that not many years ago, um, atlases like this were being published, that we could talk about something like sea ice. Now, if you mention sea ice to anyone today, they'll say, oh, it's melting, right? Anyone, even in the general public, that's been on the media enough that people know sea ice is changing. But in the 70s, even though we had this amazing satellite technology, we didn't yet have the data to know that it was changing so much. Fantastic. Thank you very much for showing uh, Those are great show and tells. An excellent start. We're going to get straight into the maths now. Um, and uh, this is, uh, this, so Katie, we'll start with you. This is from David Emery. Um, did we discover or invent mathematics? So this this becomes quite a philosophical question, yeah. I imagine, as well, to some yeah. extent. Starting easy there, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, happy with just, you know, what's 8 plus 12 to start off with. But yeah, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think this is one of the big questions that people ask, because this this sort of philosophical divide between whether maths is something that, um, you know, is entirely a fabrication of humans or whether it's something that sort of just exists out there in the universe and we're kind of uncovering it gradually bit by bit. Um, I think I personally, I don't know if it's a thing you can have an opinion about, I think my personal opinion is that it's more discovery because I like this sort of romantic idea that there's all this wonderful stuff out there just waiting for us to go and dig it up. Um, but I think there definitely is some aspect of it that is sort of about the way we do maths, I guess. Um, you know, if you kind of reset everything back to the beginning and ran humanity over again, would we discover maths in the same way? Would we find things in the same order? Um, and I think it's probably a mixture of both because there are things which are kind of fundamental constants. You know, like if you, um, you know, if you've got prime numbers, say, they'll always be interesting. They'll always have that same property. No matter how you come to them, you'll discover that this thing exists, you know. Uh, so Pythagoras' theorem, you know, the, the square on the hypotenuse is always going to be equal to the sum of the other two sides on a right angle triangle. Um, and at some point in the history of your society, you'll discover right angle triangles and you'll discover this fact. Um, you might go about proving it in different ways. Um, I mean, something like Pythagoras' theorem, there are a lot of ways to prove Pythagoras' theorem, and you might find a different set of them if you were to, to try again from, from the beginning. I suspect a lot more of the applied math stuff would be done in slightly different ways. You know, people would find different ways to approximate things and, um, you know, different ways to make use of the maths. But I think the really pure stuff, the kind of really abstract mathematical kind of ideas would be the same regardless. So I think those kinds of things are discovered, but then the way that we make use of maths is something that we invent. I loved it. We had Brian Green on a while ago, and I did a book, I shambles, did a book with, shambles with him. His, his new book's wonderful. I should highly recommend it. But I loved it. At one point, he said, sometimes I have these moments of fear where I imagine the extraterrestrials arrive and they go, oh, yeah, we used to think maths was the language of the universe, too. So I thought it was quite delightful. Um, the uh, next question is from John, and John would like to know, uh, in fact, this is a maths question, so I hope you don't mind, Katie. I'm going to go straight to what makes a good math, and, and in fact, this I think everyone else will have uh, something to say about this because it's also about modelling as well. What makes a good mathematical model? Is the design of the model more important than the data included? For example, if you have great data, can a less great modelling system still provide use useful results? Sure you, yeah. yeah, I think it's a tough question because I get how good your model is depends on how good your data is in some cases. Like a lot of the time you inform 
how the model works by looking at the data. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm very much a pure mathematician, so this is on the the more applied side, and uh, you know, not not the kind of thing I usually play around with. But my understanding is that you know, if you've got a brilliant model but not very good data, like it doesn't necessarily you you kind of need both. Basically, you need a bit of both to to contribute to it to actually have something that's meaningful and useful. And any model is only as good as it is. You know, you can't rely on them 100. percent So. Uh, it's, it's the sort of thing like the more complicated your model is, the closer it will approximate the thing that you're trying to model. Um, but in fact, eventually you get to the point where it's so complicated that you might as well just run the universe and measure everything. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, you, you know how it, the point of making a model is to simplify it enough that you can calculate it yourself and any simplification is going to remove data. So, But there's a really interesting combination of ideas here, which is that, that so the, so the, mo- the model is the machine and the data is what you feed into it. So I see them as two separate things. Like you can build an extremely realistic model of physical processes, for example, you know, what's a cloud doing? When's it going to rain? All that kind of stuff. But it only that that machine of your model only does something if you put in some initial data that says, well, today the temperature is twenty degrees and it's definitely raining over here, and and the the, the data kind of feeds through the model, and so they are separate things. You do need them both to be right. And there's two things that the thing that really is interesting here is the question of sensitivity, because all models like the real world some things matter more than others in the hierarchy of things that matter and so it may be that perhaps the temperature really really matters so if you get the temperature wrong by even a little bit your whole thing will be off but maybe some other parameter like humidity well you know you can get that wrong by 10 or 20 percent it doesn't make that much difference to the outcome so actually what you do with models is you tune them so that they um, deal with the most sensitive data and they're most accurate where it's where it matters where the you know temperature matters most they really deal with temperature in a lot of detail and some other stuff is slightly you know it's kind of penciled in rather than done in fine detail and so there's this really interesting thing between models and data and so the, the time when it matters i won't we don't want there's a whole we shouldn't have the whole lecture on this but the time when it matters is that um what if your starting assumption was wrong? What if you thought, well, perhaps, you know, the warm water under the Antarctic ice sheet doesn't matter very much. So we'll design a model that says, oh, that bit doesn't matter very much. So your initial data might not be good enough. And then you find out and then you've got to go, oh, no, we do need to build a better bit of the model because now we've got data that says that does matter. And so there's this Although I think the model and the data are very separate, it's the machine and the food, you design your machine depending on how important the food is. And yeah, but we're constantly trying to improve these things. So it's, it's always a bit of a, uh, it's always a bit of both. Yeah, you do very much need both, much the, mo- need both the models and the models to be good with all the physical processes and the data. Um, it made me laugh when Katie said you can build a brilliant model and have rubbish data. Because like, oh, she's read my PhD thesis. Because working in the polar regions, we don't have a ton of data to work with, surprisingly. People don't go there that often. We don't have a lot of information. Um, but one of the problems we're starting to come up against, now that we're getting more and more data, there are more satellites. Um, NASA launched their ISAT-2 two years ago now, so we're getting tons of data and more than we can currently work with, is how much computing power do we have to work with this data? So I, for example, look at lakes and rivers on top of Antarctica, and I model those on quite a small scale, and by small scale, I mean meters or kilometers. But people who are worrying about the whole global climate will be looking at degrees of latitude and longitude, so they can't possibly 
incorporate the processes that I'm looking in looking at into their models. So we have to make a compromise. And again, what Helen mentioned about sensitivity, we have to decide which processes are most important that we put into those bigger models now. Um, and hopefully as time goes on and we get better computers, we can put in more and more processes and get more accurate models. But computer power is very much a limiting factor as well in that. But there is something very, another sort of add on to that is that if you go to the satellite data centers like Copernicus, which is the big European satellite, those constellations, the Sentinels, they produce loads of data and they are designed to produce more data than any current computer can deal with. They don't expect computing to catch up with that amount of data for another 20 years. But because once you've got better computers, you can't go back in time, you need the best resolution data now. So they're basically, they're hoarding it even though they won't, they're not expecting to be able to use it for another two decades, which is brilliant and a bit scary. Yeah. Now we've got, oh, sorry, go on, Sammy. I, I, was just say, I, I was just gonna say one thing that is good about though is that we kind of can go back in time because once we know how things in the climate have changed, we can use that past data to test our models. So if we have data from now and in 10 years time, we build a model, we can start this model in 2020 and say, what does it think happened in 2030? And we can see if it gets it right. So that's also really exciting that you can test the models, then you have more trust in their future output and what they're saying might happen to the world in the future. Brilliant, thank you. Okay, to your next question, this is a high pressure one because this is settling a bet between brothers after an unsatisfactory answer from Hannah Fry. So I'm not putting any pressure on you here, but this is uh, uh, Rob Eng says, uh, I asked this when Hannah Fry was on and she didn't really give a conclusive enough answer to settle this long-standing dispute with my brother. So I've been waiting patiently for some mathematicians. Graphs are charts, but charts aren't graphs. True or false? Oh, that's an question, I think. That's, <laughs> that's more about definitions of words, isn't it, I guess? Um, so... Well, the, the thing that throws a spanner in for me is that graph is a word that mathematicians also use to describe a completely different thing, which is a sort of network diagram. Um, and I guess that's what I would think of if you say graph. Um, but I think people do use that to mean like a, a you know, a line graph. Um, I guess chart is also used more generally. So you get things like flow charts and org charts as well that are charts. Um, so I Nautical suspect that charts. Yeah, Nautical yeah, just, charts and air charts. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, maps are charts, aren't they? Um, and it's also a term that's used in maths to describe something that looks at a small section of a surface. But anyway, um, you know, words are words. They're used for lots of different things. I suspect that there is an overlap between graphs and charts, but I couldn't necessarily say that one is fully included in the other. It's maybe a Venn diagram with a non-empty intersection. So are you telling us you can't draw a chart to tell us whether the charts and graphs, what the relationship between charts and graphs is? It's a diagram. It's neither. Yeah. Oh, well, this is good. This is good. So, anyway, so anyway, Rob, Rob if, if you and your brother are ultimately bonded by the fact you have this continual dispute, much like the Hitchens brothers, of course, always were, then the dispute remains and therefore your bond remains as well. So I think that's good news. But we'll I'll tell you, what, we'll wait the next time we've got an English graduate on the science Q&A, then we'll also throw it over to them as well. And we'll see where we get. Um, this is from uh, Brannigan's A. And uh, Sammy, I don't know if you know this. This is, is there the same amount of water on Earth as there was a few million years ago? just in different forms um i don't know as far I know as far back a few million years ago but certainly the way that the climate system works at the moment then water is constantly changing between water vapor ice and actual water so definitely in kind of recent history and recent history i'm talking in terms of thousands of years rather than millions then yes we do have the same amount of water 
It's just in different states and it's constantly changing. Excellent. Thank you. Now, Definitely uh, for you, Helen, it's about bubbles. This is from Eileen Chang, who would like to know, uh, where can you find anti-bubbles in nature or are they all man-made? And do anti-bubbles produce sound at their formation and or when they collapse like bubbles do? So if you could first of all decide, uh, just define what an anti-bubble is for us, Helen. Uh, well, I should start by saying an anti-bubble is something that I didn't know about uh, for quite a long time. And then a student of mine who had a project came to me with these photographs and said, there's this thing here. And I'm like, that's a weird thing. I don't know what you've done there, but that's not a thing. And he was like, it's here for a photograph. I want to study it. I was like, okay. And it turned out he was right. And um, what an, and you can tell, you can identify bubbles very quickly. So an anti-bubble, um, imagine, uh, so I'll, I'll tell you what it is by the way it normally forms. So imagine you've got a drop of water that is falling down onto the surface of some other water. And as it falls down, there's a little layer of air underneath it. And the bubble, the drop goes down and the little air, layer of air stays. And then the water closes over the top. So you've got your original drop in the middle with this shell of water around it, a shell of air around it, and then water outside of that. And so it's like a soap bubble, but inside out, basically. It's a, it's a shell of air with water on the inside and water on the outside. And it sounds like it shouldn't last any time at all. And actually, they can last um, easily 30 seconds, the big ones, up to several minutes for the really small ones. And they are stable. And so... So they, the way these is that they, they're a bit tricky to make, but you can do it. Um, and I think they will form in nature because you can imagine, first of all, uh, it helps to have some surfactants. So you need a soapy surface or there's lots of natural surfactants. So there's lots of organic matter in, um, you know, the nat natural world that will generate a layer of surfactant. So I reckon if you had water, like rainwater dripping off a leaf from quite low down, you would get one of these forming and then they sit just under the water column and one of the odd things about them is that they don't rise and of course they're well not very quickly and the reason they don't is that there's so little air in there that it can't move all the water that's on the inside they do, they do rise eventually so you can identify them first because they're perfectly spherical and most bubbles kind of squash as they you know as they get to the surface they look a bit squashed because of buoyancy and secondly anti-bubbles just sort of drift around in the water column and look really odd so um, so he was right and he did a um, study on it over the summer and then together we wrote the paper that answers the second question here, which is do they make a sound when they're formed? And bubbles do, do generally make a sound when they're formed uh, because the... At the moment that a new bubble forms, it's usually got an edge. It's usually got a sharp bit. Bubbles don't like sharp bits. So that pointy bit of the bubble basically springs back and it's like a hammer hitting a bell. Now, anti-bubbles don't make very much sound at the moment they form. So when the drop goes through the water and the water closes over the top, there's very little noise. But what happens when an anti-bubble pops, right? It's underneath the water and eventually the air drains up to the top and it touches at the bottom. And then all that air that was around the outside goes whoosh and makes a new smaller bubble that is a proper bubble. And that makes a sound. And you can record that sound and you can actually measure how thick the anti-bubble is by measuring the sound that it makes when it's destroyed. So um, that is a very technical answer, sorry. <laughs> They're really interesting. They are very hard to form. They were, they were first seen back in 1922 and then nobody thought about them. And now they're actually used for medicine quite a lot. So really tiny ones because you can put little little blob of medicine 
inside this air bubble, which you can then make stable. So quite a lot of the research on them now is for really, really tiny antibubbles that people are using for drug delivery. So they're really interesting little things. Uh, and I think they do form in nature and they make a sound when they're destroyed, but not really when they're formed. Brilliant. Thank you. And just reminder for everyone, if you do have a question, by the way, you can uh, actually just write them up now, put them on the feed. And uh, we have got a lot to get through, but we may well be able to squeeze a couple more in. So if you have anything on uh, on maths, on bubbles or anti-bubbles, uh, on climate change, then uh, get them in now. And also a reminder that if you, uh, you can go down to the bottom of the page somewhere and you'll find a tip jar uh, if you fancy uh, putting any money in for today's show or if you on the longer term uh, go to Patreon and subscribe to us there that will be very useful to us and we thank you very very much but also of course if you uh, if you don't want to do that or you can't do that uh, that's not a problem as well we always try and make as much as possible free to access so let's now uh, this is from Melissa R Katie she would like to know is the hunt for the biggest prime number real world useful or is it more just a fun mathematical problem Hmm. I mean, I guess, I mean, to be clear, the biggest prime number isn't going to be a thing because they do go on forever. That's the thing we definitely know. <laughs> um, there is strictly no biggest prime number, but I guess there is a new biggest prime number every time a prime number is discovered that is bigger than all the previously known ones. Um, so I think generally what happens is that because um, it, it's difficult to find prime numbers, right? The, the important thing is that there is no pattern in the prime numbers that we can discern. Um, and if we could, believe me, a lot of mathematicians would be very pleased about that. If we knew how to predict where the next prime number would be, that would be a very useful thing to know. Um, but because prime numbers are random in a way that isn't like any other kind of randomness, you know, it's not something that we have a handle on really. Um, so if you want to know whether something's a prime number, you just have to take that number and divide it by a bunch of stuff and check. Uh, and there are a few other sort of shortcut ways of doing it, but generally it's quite difficult, computationally difficult to determine whether something's prime or not. Um, so when they're finding big prime numbers, um, they're not just kind of going to the next biggest number that we we don't know whether or not it's prime and just checking that one. Uh, they're doing sort of shortcut things like using Mersenne primes, which are uh, prime numbers that are next to powers of two, um, I guess. And you, you know, you check the numbers that are next to powers of two, um, and there's some kind of shortcut methods for doing that, which means the top, I think the top 10 biggest prime numbers certainly recently when I checked were all of this form. So kind of we know a bunch of sort of smallish prime numbers, smallish, um, you know, tens of thousands of digits. And then there's a few that we know that are above that, but they're all kind of quite spread out. There's a lot in between that we don't know about. Um, to answer the actual question, uh, I think you know, having big prime numbers, because big prime numbers are used in things like encryption and, you know, there are, there are useful things that you can do with them. Um, but in practice, the most useful aspect of it is going to be that in finding these numbers, you'll develop techniques, you'll understand things about prime numbers and about number theory and about uh, even just how good your computers are uh, that will improve maths otherwise generally anyway. So it's sort of useful in the sense that it furthers mathematics because people are thinking about interesting things and trying to find new ways to solve these problems. Um, but finding the actual numbers themselves potentially to some extent might be sort of stamp collecting um but you know prime numbers are cool so it's, it's good to know where they all are brilliant this uh, uh this question for you sammy from renee who would like to know is something that is probably simpler than it seems in my head what's the difference between a glacier and an ice flow or iceberg or are they just different words for the same thing so again the kind of definitions of trying to understand the picture that you can place in your head hey, no, that's, hey, no, that's 
a great question, actually, because a lot of people don't know the difference. So the easiest one is a glacier or an, or an ice flow is something that is essentially ice on top of land. So the kind of glaciers we have up in the Alps count, Antarctica is kind of lots of glaciers and ice flows all mixed up together, um, sitting on top of the land. And when we get an iceberg is where one of those glaciers or ice flows meets the sea and part of it breaks off. That is your iceberg. So ice that used to be on the land and is floating in the ocean is an iceberg. Now, this is different from the sea ice I was talking about earlier, because that's the frozen ocean. And that's another thing that people often find confusing, which is understandable, it kind of is. And um, so most of the Arctic is covered in sea ice, which is something completely different. Um, as for the difference between glaciers and ice flows, um, that's kind of less clear. I tend to think that ice flows are bigger areas. Um, glaciers are kind of smaller um, areas going in a certain direction, whereas ice flows... I think there's a spelling thing going on here because the oh, problem okay. is that it's difficult is that there's two words. Uh, there's F-L-O-W and F-L-O-E. And I think this what Sammy is talking true. about is the W version. And the thing that is the frozen sea ice, when they become really big, when those frozen platelets, then we would call that an F-L-O-E, ice flow. So the ice flow with a W is part of a glacier and the ice flow with an E is very large sea ice. <laughs> right. And it does make it difficult yeah. because people say the word and everyone has one of those versions in their head, but they often don't check which one it is. Yeah, because, yeah, that, because that was asked about the, the with a W, but of course we don't know if in fact it may well have referred to something that has been heard in conversation. Yes, it's a, well, let's stick with these uh, kind of various different etymological problems that may well occur uh, during the day. Uh, this is uh, about zero, nothing and its existence. Yeah, get ready. This can go to any of you. Um, if in physics an empty space still is something, in that nothing is something, is mathematical zero the only true nothing, or is zero still something? Now, this is quite a, I, all of you. I'm going to throw this out because this is a very, you know, I, I think from the moment that people start to, you know, if, if you add up everything in the universe, you know, you end up going, oh, and, and it's zero. It's, you know, what happens when you get zero? If you smash open nothing, it turns out it creates a lot of something. That's where I think people get, there's so many different ideas of the, the true existence of nothingness. So, starting with that, I'm going to go to you first, Helen, because you're the physicist. So, I think this very you are of a practical or theoretical mindset. So, um, nothing, I would say, is a theoretical concept. And it's very useful because it's a theoretical concept. But in practice, because of quantum fluctuations, you could argue that zero is never actually reached. So, so I think if you're, if you're, um, if you like playing with ideas in your head and it's very useful then then you would probably tend towards zero being a a theoretical construct but it is i don't know it is i think it's really um it's really revealing it says more about the people than it does about the maths i think you know there's that joke that there's all there's a load of jokes that say you know a building's on fire an engineer walks in and uh, throws a blanket over it and the physicist walks in and does something else and the mathematician walks in and says there is a solution and walks out again <laughs> sorry katie <laughs> that sort of thing i think there's a there's a zero and if all you care about is that they're in the theoretical world it, the maths the beauty of the equations works that way then i think you like your theoretical zero i'm a practical person well can i ask then is there is that is there anywhere in the universe where nothing 
exists. There's always energy, right? Yeah. That's where I've we wondered, get to the... And, gravi- and, and field. So the definition of a field in physics is something that fills all space. And it is the case that a field could have a value of zero, but it, it's always going to be an, a slightly non-zero value because of quantum fluctuations, whatever the field is, I think. So... So, and it is with, yeah, physicists use this word field and everyone's got this mental image of a thing with cows in it. But actually a field is just a physics word that says something exists everywhere through all of space. It's not a physical thing. It's not, you can't like pick it off the shelf, but we have a, that's our way of describing something which conceptually fills, it exists in every bit of space that there are. And so you can have all kinds of different fields. Um, But I think the field always has a value, even if that value is, effectively zero it's still there i don't know what's the mathematician's day <laughs> well, well i mean that, that's the thing kind of the, there are results about that things you know are, are equal to zero at certain points like there's a um a really nice and stupidly named bit of maths called the hairy ball theorem which says that you know on any hairy surface so essentially a vector field on the surface of a sphere um the the you know there must be a point where it's equal to zero um and it's called the hairy ball theorem because it's sort of roughly equivalent to you can't comb the hair on a ball flat um which is why people always have like a bit of hair that sticks up at the back if you cut the hair short um but anyway uh yeah i think zero as a, a sort of mathematical concept i mean i, I almost feel like Uh, to say that it is the true nothing is sort of doing it down because zero is a really important and useful concept and it's you know it's an abstract concept but in the same way that five is right it it does exist like it has an existence and a meaning um and there are senses in which zero is sort of nothingness so for example in the context of adding adding zero doesn't change the thing you've got so in in that sense it's sort of a a nothingy thing but it's important that it exists because you need to be able to say what happens you know if you do plus one minus one what does that mean um but if you think about zero and multiplying then it very much does make a difference if you multiply something by zero it will kind of eliminate it so um you know it's it's a concept and it has lots of properties but in in the same way that almost any other concept in maths does and you know it's it is special it's not just like any other number but a lot of numbers have interesting properties and zero is just one of them i guess now, Sammy, you're in a position, you're in a position here. here where you can either uh, decide to answer the zero nothing question, or you can opt out and go straight for one about uh, satellites and climate tracking. I mean, one of those is definitely more. So <laughs> maybe we should go for the satellites. Okay, I then am this is. But I'm an applied mathematician, so zero for me is just a nothing, and I don't question that too much. Oh, well, you, good. Then you've answered that anyway great that's uh, so now um this is from Ethan who would like to know are satellites getting so good at tracking climate that there's reduced need for field work in locations that might be environmentally difficult damaging to go to i can see helen laughing there she's <laughs> <laughs> yeah well the thing about satellites it's great we're getting more measurements and more regular measurements but we need to know that the satellites are correct so we still need people to go to all these difficult to reach locations and do something which we call ground truthing, which essentially, if we're trying to work out, for example, how much snow is on top of a sea ice flow, F-L-O-E, we'll go with that one, um, we need someone to actually go there and dig it up and stick a ruler into the snow and say how much snow is here and compare that to what the satellite said to check that the satellite is right. So we're still going to have to go to these places. We just get more data in between those trips to the places from the satellites. 
Well, there's also something which is much bigger. Sorry, I will make my soapbox stint here short, <laughs> which is process. Is that what a satellite? A satellite never measures the thing you get out of it. That is not what a satellite does. What a satellite does is measure some property of radiation of a form of light. And then you interpret that. But what it doesn't tell you is what's actually going on. And the reason I feel strongly about this is that I am a process scientist, right? I'm the one that's on the ground or on the ocean looking for the small mechanisms. And I'm actually involved, you know, in a couple of things at the moment where there's this big idea for a satellite mission, which could do all these things, but actually it can only do anything useful if you already understand the bits of the engine that are actually happening in the surface of the ocean, like if you go a meter below, what's happening? What's it doing down there? Because it's only when you understand that that you can go back to the satellite data and go, okay, maybe this is telling me something useful. And the thing about the natural world is that the processes are so complicated that if you're not checking all the time, you risk just assuming that you understand from the satellite. And one of the reasons I, I care about this is that... Um, what I see is earth science as a danger of earth science becoming a load of people basically playing computer games, which is that they've got some computer models, they get some data, they muck around in this virtual world and it all looks fine and then they tell us that's what it means. Whereas if you go out into the environments as a field scientist, you experience stuff, you notice things that were never on your list of things to notice. You see things that aren't supposed to be there and you see that some of the things that are supposed to be there aren't there. And unless you're constantly doing that, you lose all, like you lose your reality check. You're just playing computer games. And I think it's really important that scientists go into the field and really physically understand what it is they are studying, even if they only do it once because they hate going on ships or mountains or whatever I 100% I 100% agree with that it's something that in glaciology really bugs me is I feel we're very separate the modelers and the field scientists and I think to be a good modeler which is the box I put myself in I still need to have been and seen some ice occasionally to know what's going on because there are things that are surprising and to be able to work best with the people who are out in the field all the time we need to know what kind of stuff they're going through getting that data to know how to use the data well so I think we should have a lot more overlap for sure I remember a discussion um, a few years ago, 10 years ago now, between there was a big ocean project and the um, Office of Naval Research in America had brought the, the, the experimentalists and the modelers into the same room and they were having an argument about how much light there was two metres below the ocean surface. And this theoretician just said, you know, it got quite, he just said, look, why can't you just measure what the light is two meters below the surface of the ocean and the experimentalist said well it's because the surface of the ocean is going up and down by 10 meters like you tell me exactly what in that you consider two meters to be because you're sort of you've got this conceptual idea that looks very simple and then there's these practicalities that make it quite a lot harder so yeah but we all need to talk to each other more that's the lesson isn't it uh, this, uh, this is a question from Rachel. This is for all of you. Rachel says, have any of you spent days trying to work out some exciting new phenomena and then realised it wasn't new at all and you just forgot to do something simple like carry two, three pages of working out? Uh, so uh, she says, I regularly do this when coding and it makes me want to cry. I wish I'd only spent days doing, days doing that, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> the total time of my career so far is a number I don't want to try and calculate. It happens to all of us, absolutely. And so any, any particular kind of uh, those moments of going, yes, this is it, this is a new, oh. Yeah, I've done that. I've had uh, my, my, the one that I got most excited about. And to be, in my defense, it was because I made some measurements and then I had to go and do other stuff for a couple of months. So I held on to this thing before I really checked it and got all excited for two months. And I thought I discovered a new way that bubbles break up. 
and uh, when they're smashed about by turbulence. And it turns out that what the bubbles were doing is they were rising up in my um, experimental tank and they were hitting glass tubes. And it was basically like, um, a, you know, like a, a ting, a sort of ting noise when it, when the metal stick hits a triangle. And so the bubbles were making these glass tubes ring. And I was so excited that I thought I'd seen this pattern. And it turns out the bubbles were literally playing my experiment like a musical instrument. <laughs> and then the excitement went away. See, the nearest, nearest I can have to that is, is that thing where when I used to be a stand-up and you come up with a joke and you suddenly go, there's no way this joke can't exist already. And you just spend week ringing up friends going, has anyone done this? Has anyone done this? Has anyone done this? I actually this? did That's... that last week. So this, I've actually got to do some science in the middle of all this COVID stuff in the last week. And I, the last few months I've been really, you know, like I've found a thing to do with how breaking ways do something. And I've been really pleased with myself. I've been reading, black, I'm writing the paper on it, going back to your literature. I found a paper written in 1987 by my postdoc supervisor um, where there's just one throwaway line where he was like, oh yeah, and of course you could do this. And I was like... <laughs> I thought I was first. I thought no one had noticed this before. And he hadn't made the measurement. He hadn't done any of the details, but he had noticed that it was possible in 1987. And I went, oh, okay. Well, at least I've got some numbers now. Right, right final, final question for today. Oh, actually, one more I, I should, should mention, which is someone wants to know, where can they see these anti-bubbles, Helen? Where's the best place to uh, go on the internet to see? Uh... Uh, very, there's very little video of them. I mean, if you look, if you just Google anti-bubbles anti on YouTube, you'll find some people who have made little videos showing them. Don't pay too much attention to what they're saying in a few cases, but they definitely make them. You can see them. The, way, the nice way to do it is that you put dye in the water that you drop in, and then you can see there's a little blue blob that's kind of moving around. Um, but actually, try it for yourself. Get a pipette, get some soapy water, and, and drip them from very low down. And you'll see drops kind of hover on the surface of it before they go in. And somewhere around there, if you mess about with drop size and height, you'll be able to make some anti-bubbles. Brilliant. Thank you. And then, yes, Matt, yes, would, Matt like, would like to know, since we've known about climate change since the 1800s, how have the mathematical predictions and models from then, or as far back as we can go, stood up to where they are now? So, Sammy, in terms of the, ch I suppose, first of all, the changing in the possibility of modelling. I mean, that, that's a, you know, when do we first start seeing what would be notionally called a, a model in terms of this area, this area? Well, anything that they were doing back in the 1800s um, could be called a model. If you just have one equation with an input and an output, that is the most simple kind of model. The difference is our models now have all these different processes in them. So the original models would just be saying things like, if we put more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, things are going to get warmer. We have the greenhouse effect. But now we're able to say things like, well, we know things are getting warmer. So how does that affect the ocean? Are we, is the ocean expanding as it gets warmer? Are we melting polar ice caps and putting water into the ocean? So the level of complexity that we have now and the amount of processes that they wouldn't even be able to consider in the 1800s because they wouldn't even really known about Antarctica um, to any real extent. Um, we just have so much more information now. I'm not going to say that our predictions are necessarily way, way more accurate because there's still... I'm not sure if you could hear that. Um, but we are definitely improving the models all the time. So we still have a long way to go and we know a huge amount more than we did in the 1800s. But we are, yeah, we still have a lot that we still don't really understand, which is why I'm in a job and it's great. 
Brilliant. Thank you all very much. That brings Thank us to the end of today's uh, uh, science Q&A. Uh, next week, as it is only uh, next Sunday, it's only 98 uh, experimenting days till the Christmas lectures. So we will already be starting our Christmas rundown by having Helen will be back. Uh, and we will also have Chris and Tara who are going to be presenting. Uh, they, all three of them will be doing the Christmas lectures uh, in December. Uh, so if you have any questions, uh, not merely on their areas, areas of expertise, but as well about kind of approaching these ideas about how they're thinking about working out ways of we're, we're not going to give away too much well okay if you've got any questions for them they yet. won't answer them there we go that's <laughs> changed the sunday science q a uh it's uh, it, we can have sunday a but you won't know what the q was because that's kind of keeps it mysterious um so the, the but but in terms of approaches without actually giving away i think that idea we might talk a little bit about science communication as well um within that i should also mention by the way that nara chamberlain was meant to be uh on today president of the institute of mathematics and pretty much at the, at the last minute there was something that, that's the kind of thing that happens when you're president of the institute of mathematics suddenly there are major mathematical world issues that come up and she will be with us i think in the next couple of weeks we'll, we'll put that up but it's 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 yeah not, not uh there will be uh, more of that soon um so thank you very much to uh, Katie, to Sam, Sammy, to Helen. Uh, as I said, Helen will be back with us next week. Uh, you can support us via uh, Patreon or just put something in the tip jar. And also, if you ever kind of think, oh, do you know what? This is a scientist that I'd like to hear from or a subject that I'd like to hear about. You know, we're always interested in your useful and creative feedback. We're not particularly interested in uh, your uh, negative uh, feedback because there's plenty of that out there anyway and most of us have some element of self-loathing so we can do that ourselves um, thank you very much as usual to our producer Trent Burton as I said on Wednesday we're going to be doing a uh, live Doctor Who show and tell with two people who know an enormous amount uh, about Doctor Who and have incredible knowledge also of many of the not merely the actors in it but the producers the directors and the creative people and the, the, a lot of the people working on, on the technology side as well so that's going to be with uh, Alan Lear and Toby Haydock on Wednesday evening I think at 8.30 as far as I remember and I will have one I'll wave I'll show you what happened to my molar so for those of you who like a kind of video nasty dentistry um, you can enjoy that and enjoy the moment when a bit of cotton wool suddenly just flies out of my mouth and ends up just landing on the camera that will be fun 3D stuff okay have a lovely bank holiday Monday and uh, well enjoy as much of your life as you can I say bye-bye Thank you very much for listening. Support us at patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at CosmicShambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cosmic Shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now.